0: Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app.
1: You are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with EW Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 309 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, EW Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a vivacious, bombastic, Conversation with regular contributor Surf William, our resident historian, and uh, we talk about the the world, the country, society, human nature, all kinds of great avenues of discourse with the one and only your favorite and mine, Surf William, this week on the program. We also have an EW essay titled Already There, and an excerpt from the brilliant novel by David Foster Wallace, Infinite Jest, and a poem called "Om." All of this, as is always the case, will be infused, imbued with the energy of several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it, episode 309 of Troubadours and Rock-On Tours. there. A drop dripped, and a ray of sunlight refracted through it, and then through the front door, and the colossal moment in time touched my forefinger's tip as I pushed my arm and hand through the long cashmere sleeve of my shin-length black overcoat. Needless to be redundant, but I must say clearly to you, I was amazed. Am I losing my mind noticing this? Has it even really happened? Am I using my mind seeing this, assuming it really happened? I wonder about the things, the scenes that we focus on and see, the sense of valid, valuable reality we subtly choose to perceive. Is that you? Is this me? I wonder because on occasion I believe I get a glimpse of how self-serving and routine-driven we are to a fault doing things, believing dogma for years, often for thousands of years, without much question or reflection. Is it lazy? Is it fear? Is it just that it is so difficult to figure out being here? I know kindness and love and patience and courage lead, nourish us into good, though I also know that many people prey on or do not feel comfortable with this rendition of good. I go back to the reflection and refraction of light through the drop of water onto my fingertip as I put on my overcoat. I open the door and step into it, as if I were not already there.
2: Maybe it's time to let the old ways die Maybe it's time to let the old ways die Takes a lot to change, man Hell, it takes a lot to try Maybe it's time to let the old ways die Nobody knows what ways for the dead Nobody knows what ways for the dead Some folks just believe in the things they've heard and the things they read Nobody knows what ways for the dead I'm glad I can't go back to where I came from I'm glad those days are gone, gone for good If I could take spirits from my past and bring them here You know I would Know I would Nobody speaks to God these days Nobody speaks to God these days I'd like to think he's looking down and laughing out of ways Nobody speaks to God these days When I was a child they tried to fool me Said the worldly man was lost and that hell was real Well I've seen hell in Reno And this world's one big old Catherine With spinning still. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die Maybe it's time to let the old ways die It takes a lot to change your plans a train to change your mind Maybe it's time to let the old ways die Oh, maybe it's time to let the old ways die
1: Hello, Serf William. Is that you?
3: Oh, hola, si- hola, si- hola, senor. Can you hear me?
1: I can. Cc, si, si, senor. Oh, yay. How's it going? Good to have you on Troubadours and Raconteurs again.
3: Oh. It's always a, a privilege and an honor and a thrill to be on Troubadours and Raconteurs.
1: Oh, so kind. And I like the way you say that. Our resident <laughs> historian, ladies and gentlemen, Serf William. Let's... uh. Let's get right in. I, I mean, I have a long list. You've been throwing ideas at me for a good couple of weeks. Um, let, let me just read them. It's almost like a poem. Um, we'll, see, we'll see which ones we hit. Lucretius, yeah. Yeah. infomercials and infotainment. Socialism, Camus, letters to a German friend. Republicans, intentional or unintentional confusion of the terms, quote, elite and intelligentsia. Mm-hmm. They say elite, but they mean intelligentsia. Yeah. If you are a racist, you have no innate sense of justice. Racism actually represents an existential threat to freedom and justice. You want to talk about the uneven distribution of wealth, about unions, about Robert Kraft. Boo-hoo. What an ugly man. That's my own. I just had to say that. That's not Sir William. I think he's an ugly man. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be rude, but he is. He's an ugly man. Inside. Inside.
3: Inside. Inside.
1: Inside, That's why he, yeah, exactly. That's why he's ugly outside. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Trump, another ugly man, two ugly men. Two ugly men. And uh, Republican right-wing sophistry and also the Cohen hearings and a Facebook exchange. So let's, where do
3: you want to start? Well, it's been a great show, EW. Thank you. That was a, that was great. Okay, I'll see you later.
1: <laughs> wow. Yeah, that was like no work on your part at all. You're, you're, you're literally phoning it in.
3: I don't know where I want to start. Where do you want to start?
1: Uh, any of those really get you going? Any of the things I just... I mean, these are all your ideas. You You've been texting these to me for the last couple of weeks, and I love it. They just pop up because you know you're anticipating that we're going to be talking soon. But w- right. what, whatever, whatever one of those that really prompted you right now after I read them that you want to grab onto. Um, we'll go uh,
3: if we go well, um, well. Go we'll go back to the top of the list. What do we have at the top of the list? Lucretius. Yeah, I just I read an interesting book um, called The Swerve, recommended by my by my stepbrother. and um, it has to do with a uh, an Italian an Italian researcher from the Renaissance from the fourteen hundreds. Who wrote around Europe, mostly Germany, going to monasteries, trying to find ancient Roman texts, you know, ancient texts in Latin, um, that had been previously either forgotten or, or, um, or intentionally or unintentionally tucked away in some corner somewhere, because these were all, these were all, um, pagan texts, obviously they were written before Jesus. So the Catholic Church, when it, when it stumbled upon them at various times, would either just flat out destroy them or file them away somewhere so no one could read them because they were pagan texts. They were, they were antithetical to the teachings of the church. And uh, this guy rode around Europe and, and went looking for them. Because what they did, you know, in those days, what people would do is if they had a codex or, you know, what we would call a book now, they were usually made out of like um, uh, animal, animal skins.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and they were very expensive, and they were very complicated to make. So if you found one, and you didn't like the text that was in it, you could scrape it very delicately with a knife, and you could write over it. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the Roman texts that we have now, that are, that are today extant, um, were actually found because researchers like this guy named Poggio Broccolini would go to monasteries and really critically analyze their books. And sometimes they would find underneath biblical verses, they would find ancient Latin texts written before Christ. And one of them was Lucretius. And Lucretius wrote a book called, actually it was a giant poem called On the Nature of Things. And I just it struck me as really interesting because it was a really enlightened view of the world. It was in a lot of ways very Buddhist, in a lot of ways very modern. And I mean, I know I'm going to totally not do it justice now. But basically what he said was, you know, stop worrying about uh, an afterlife and the gods and, and these these obscure concepts when the life that we're given right now, as brief as it is and as insignificant as we seem in the scheme of the cosmos, this life right now is the life we've got. And you should really live this life to the fullest. You should eat, you should drink, you should love, you should work. And it wasn't about redemption in some nebulous um afterlife it was about making your paradise here on earth and of course when the catholic church discovered this text it just wanted to do away with it because it was you know the the of course the officials of the church were afraid if anybody read this stuff they'd start to get these crazy ideas that you should enjoy life
1: right like they, um, only they could do that you know
3: behind right, behind right. their walls so I, I, I found it really, it was, it's a, first of all, it's a really good book. It's by, it's by Greenblatt, who's a really good author. I, I like his writing. And also, um.
1: Well, let me ask you about, this, Lucretius, what, what so this is circa, he was a pagan then.
3: Yeah. He lived in, he lived in Rome. Um, he was born in like 90 BC and he lived to about 50 BC. So, you know, about, about 40, he was about 50 years old when he died. Actually, no, I take that back. He was he was 44 when he died. And um, the only way we knew about him before we found his text was some famous Roman writers of that era, like Virgil and Cicero, referenced him in their writings. So, you know, historians knew about Cicero and Virgil, but they only had hearsay about this guy named Lucretius and his writing until Poggio Braccolini found this text in a German monastery and reconstructed it and transcribed it and... The argument, the, the central thesis of the book is that that text by Lucretius sparked the Renaissance. In other words, that was the transitional period when people went from doctrinal thinking of the church and only thinking in terms of of, um, of church doctrine to actually becoming more humanist, you know, exploring the human body, explore, exploring philosophy. Science started to explode, so people started to use the scientific method, um... So it had laid dormant for a thousand years until Broccolini found it. And then the argument of the book is it sparked the Renaissance, basically, and not just the Renaissance, but it changed the whole course of human history because it changed the way that we think about the world. And that carries right over to the modern day. And it's just kind of, you know, you can poke holes in the author's argument, but it's fun to think about, you know, one chance encounter or one chance discovery changing the whole direction. Of of humankind, and that's kind of what he lays out, and I found it really fascinating.
1: Excellent, excellent. Now, and, um, so one chance discovery changes the course of human history.
3: That's the contention of the author, and I I like the notion of that. I don't really know if that's completely accurate, but I like the notion of it. And what struck me equally, what I found equally as fascinating, what was the the life of this of this um, Italian intellectual. And his, uh, his willingness, like we're talking about the early 1400s, his willingness to leave the comforts of Rome and Florence and travel by horse up into the nether regions of, you know, southern Germany, which in those days, that was the frontier. You know, that was like the Wild West. You, you Traveling was incredibly, incredibly challenging in those days. And um, this guy was willing to do it just for the love of discovery and for the love of knowledge.
1: And we're talking about broccolini.
3: Broccolini, yeah.
1: How do you spell that?
3: I'm going to go out on a limb. B R A C C I O L I N I. Broccolini.
1: Okay. All right. Uh, so. And the book
3: is called. The book is called The Swerve.
1: The Swerve.
3: Yes, yeah, it's, it's a New York Times bestseller book. It's a very popular book, and it and and I and it's an it's a quick read and it's fun.
1: So um, Broccolini discovered Lucretius, and. And uh, then a modern-day writer named
3: Oh Green Greenblatt
1: Greenblatt put out yeah. the book The Swerve. Thank yeah. you.
3: Thank I read another book by Greenblatt years ago called Will in the World, and it's about Shakespeare. Will and... And I
1: like I like the title I like the yeah, title
3: Will in the World. It's about the it's about the life of Shakespeare. Now Greenblatt the, the criticism that Greenblatt gets is that he there's a lot of conjecture. So in other words, based on some letters that someone wrote and uh, examining their bank statements, Greenblatt will then go on to say he was probably worried about his financial situation when he wrote this letter to his wife in 1502. Um, You know, and some historians are like, you don't know he was thinking that. But his conjecture is based on research and on documentation, and it's reasonable for him to then sort of suppose that this historical figure might have been in a certain mindset when they were creating art or when they were making a certain discovery and i feel like even though it's conjecture and one can argue against it it makes history come alive yeah and that's the and and even if it's just conjecture when you put um you know flesh and skin on these relics on these ancient figures who we think have you know are just dust when you do that it makes history more real and it makes history fun and exciting, and also it tends to allow us to remember the things we're reading and think about their influences on the world, as opposed to a clinical textbook that just gives you facts and dates oh, oh, and names. I hear you. And, and, that, I, and I like that approach to history.
1: I, I do, too. And, and I just want to say, I mean, your your, your um, passion is fantastic, but I'm getting calls from, Mount, from some of our listeners in Mount Vernon and uh, from Bushwick uh, – uh, as well as from up in uh, East Mountain, that you're you're hurting their ears. You're screaming a bit. I
3: can't you're, help it. I'm passionate. You're spitting all over the
1: microphone. It seems so. I, I'm though though those it. listeners in in uh, Oklahoma and the like, they're really <laughs> enjoying. In yeah, Missouri, uh, what you're <laughs> saying up there in Burlington, as well as Bellows Fa- Falls, you're 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 hurting their ears. So try to tone it down a little bit. Sir William here. Never. Sir William on the program, our resident historian. Now, you know, this is a nice segue based on what you're saying is a criticism of Greenblatt to another thing you want to talk about, infomercials and
3: infotainment. Yeah. Um, You know, it struck me. uh, I saw, and this leads, this started, I saw a clip on Facebook. Everything starts on Facebook, by the way. Facebook is the, is the. Facebook is the progenitor of everything that we know and do in the world today for old Um, people like us. Yeah. 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 Uh, I saw a thing on Facebook. It was a it was a minute and a half interview with Johnny Carson and it was posted by some right wing uh, website on Facebook. I do follow some of the right wingers on Facebook. I'm curious to see what they're what they're thinking and saying. And anyway, it was an interview with Johnny Carson and he was older and I think he was retired. And they asked him what he thought of the new um, the new crop of late night TV hosts and their political leanings and their and their um, proclivity to discuss politics on their show. With Johnny Carson, if you think back to Johnny Carson, he really didn't do that. And Johnny Carson said he thought it was wrong. He said, that's not right. It's not the place for it. This is entertainment. People want to come here and feel good and, you know, leave the news like leave the hard news to the news people you late night tv hosts your entertainment people and that got me thinking i said wait a minute when i look at the news and i'm putting that in air quotes by the way you can't see me but i'm doing air quotes right now you're not the doing news
1: fake news right? are you going with that right?
3: no no i'm just talking about you know the the, the the nightly news or cnn or or fox you know pick any of the shows out there when you look, if you stand back and look at those shows objectively, the way they deliver the quote unquote news to us, it's glossy and it's sexy and the hosts are very good looking and they have um, they have fluff pieces, you know, about a mom in Iowa who, you know, walked 10 miles on her hands for charity. And it's all cutesy and stuff, but it's really not news a lot of times. I can't it's watch
1: really... it. I can't watch it for the reasons you just described.
3: Right. So so it's really it's really infotainment. So I don't watch Fox, Fox News on any regular basis. But when I do turn on Fox News, the first thing that strikes me usually is there's usually some beautiful woman, perfectly quaffed, delivering some inf- some quote-unquote information to me. And I think to myself, wow, isn't it ironic that every woman that they put in front of the camera happens to look like a a, a a former Miss America. You know, that's not a coincidence that the people that they pick are beautiful, that the sets that they use are highly produced, that much of the pieces that they deliver to us are really intended to sort of distract us. It's not really news. We know what real news is. We know the crucial stuff that the citizenry should be getting, but we're not getting that. So, So here's Johnny Carson saying, hey, you late-night people, you shouldn't be political. Leave that to the news people. And I say, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's all entertainment. Yes, there's news in there. Quite honestly, the late-night people, like Seth Meyers, for example, who I watch a lot, and there's a show on Netflix now, um, Hasan Minhaj does a show on Netflix called um, Patriot Act. Yep, seeing it. These, yep. these are entertainers. These are comedians. And, of course, John Stewart John, did it, He too. started it, really. Right, and um, and Trevor, um, what's his new? What's his? What's his um, successor's name? Trevor Noah. These guys deliver. These guys are comedians and entertainers, and they are clearly doing a better job of delivering information to us than the quote unquote news outlets. So I say it's all entertainment. Choose your entertainment. I choose Seth Meyers and Trevor Noah. Some other people might choose Fox News. Um, it's all designed to entertain. And not really necessarily to inform. And if you want real news, there are sources out there that don't worry about the entertainment aspect. There are sources out there that give you news. For example, Democracy Now! Democracy Now, now is what think. I was thinking, yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's, no enter- There's not an entertainment aspect to Democracy Now! No. She's a serious journalist. She and her, and her, uh, her um, colleagues are serious journalists that deliver. Really crucial, important information to us that the infotainment networks, ABC, NBC, uh, Fox, they're not delivering that information.
1: Yeah, you i you know, and I'm proud to say on the same network as she is, Pacifica Network, you know, mm-hmm. that's basically her home network. Uh, Very name. proud. Excellent. Yeah. Um, her, let's give her name. We should give her name. I'll give you Amy, the, Amy Goodman. Amy Goodman. Exactly. She's wonderful. Yeah. How about Vice News on HBO? You ever see that?
3: Oh, no, because you know what? I don't get HBO, yeah. but um, but I know it's really good, and I have seen clips of it, and I, and I like it a lot. And again, that's hard-hitting journalism. That's going behind. That's really digging, digging in. You know, the information, so much information that's crucial for us is not being given to us unless you really, really go looking for it, unless you make an active effort. And let's face it, most people don't. Most people don't read the news at all, but certainly when they do watch news, they're watching CNN or NBC and they don't or, know any or different. Or
1: they don't know any different really. That's part of the problem. They're not taught when they're young by, you know, let's get into, we always get into education because both of us are educators you know, they're not taught when they're young. You should scrutinize. You should have a healthy skepticism. You should be asking questions as to what the information is is being given to you and who is giving it to you. If if you want to know what's going on in the world, you shouldn't just be watching television uh, channels like CNN and Fox and and so on. Uh, But that's never really presented to young folks. So when they become... Young adults and, and middle aged adults, they though they think the norm is go to CNN, go to Fox, go to NBC, what have you, and that's where you're going to get true and, and in depth coverage of what's going on in your in your world. And that's just not the case. But the, again, that's the that's the way it's presented as the norm to them from day one.
3: Well, well, well. Two things. First of all, it's really simple when we're dealing with students. I simply tell my students, question everything. That's all. Question everything, even your deepest, most Profound personal beliefs. Question them. If they're valid, if they can stand up, then they're going to stand up. If they're not, if there are holes in your thinking, if there are flaws in your logic, then, then they will be exposed if you question everything. And and, and to, to, to pick up on what you said, the, the inability of our culture to critically think about things is what has given us Donald Trump. Um, If you're a critical thinker If you're able to look at situations objectively There's no way you would vote for Donald Trump If you're thinking logically Now, I think Trump appealed to racists And ignorant people and xenophobes and nationalists That's my personal opinion But let's say you're not one of those things Let's just say you're an average worker who's looking for a break If you're a critical thinker You're going to say to yourself, what would make me think that this rich guy who never cared about a worker in his life and never had to work for anything in his life? Why would he what evidence is there that he truly cares about me, the average wage earner? And there's no evidence for it. And that's becoming more clear now that, you know, duh, Donald Trump doesn't give a crap about you. Um, If we were better critical thinkers, you know, we wouldn't have Donald Trump, but we've lost that skill in this culture and to our peril. Because we're, we're, we're starting to run into a lot of trouble now, primarily because of our lack of critical thinking.
1: Let, let, let's, very good, Sir William. Um, let's, let's get to racism. Because, you know, mm-hmm. our segment, it, it goes by too quickly. I want, I want to talk about racism. I mean, here's some critical thinking for you. You say racism actually represents an existential threat to freedom and justice. You say if you're a racist, you have no innate sense of justice. Mm-hmm. Expound.
3: Um, when we think about justice, we think about making judgments based on facts and evidence and precedent. So when we think about justice and you go into a courtroom, you think about evidence being laid out in front of a judge or jury and, um, a preponderance of the evidence leads somebody to either determine, uh, let's say a criminal defendant is guilty or not guilty based on the facts. In other words, let's say you're on trial. I'm not allowed to walk into the courtroom and say, I hate that jerky W. He's always been a jerk. Um, I heard one time that he did this terrible thing. That's not that's not evidence that any jury is going to take seriously. We want facts. When you're a racist, you are judging. You are judging someone based on their skin color, not on the content of their uh, uh, the, the content of their character. Martin you're Luther King. Dr. Body.
1: King. Thank you.
3: Right. You're basing them on how they look. Now,
1: you are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn.
3: When you, If you follow that through to its logical conclusion, what that means is what a racist really wants is for arbitrary people to make snap judgments based on nothing more than the color of your eyes or the color of your skin or, or where you come from or what religion you practice. They want to pass judgment on you based on that and determine where you work, where you live, if you go to jail, if you remain free. Well, the logical consequence of that is anybody who comes to power then could follow that doctrine and arbitrarily pass judgment on people based on, such silly things as the color of their skin. And that is antithetical to the concept of justice that's embedded in the U.S. Constitution and a lot of other constitutions around the world, too. So if you're a racist, what you're really saying is, I don't believe in fairness and justice and liberty and freedom. I'm really opposed to those values. And as a matter of fact, I do believe in oppression based on how you look. And to me, that's an existent- existential threat to the values, the values and the ideals that this country was founded on.
1: I like it. I like it very much. Uh, you know, it, it it is important for us to reflect and and compare how we behave as to what we proclaim we are as a people, as a country. And, uh, well, you know, that that is a wonderful reflection you just shared in comparison you just shared. Um,
3: it, I like it, to say, don't. We, you know, we, I strive to achieve the values and ideals that this nation was founded on. If you look at the history of our nation, it's not very pleasant.
1: No, and, if you, and, and honestly, I, the founding fathers weren't as pure as
3: we make them. No, no, but, I, I, but the way I maintain hope is by saying that those values and ideals on which this nation was built, they're still valid they still count. And I'm still going to strive to achieve them, even if we fall short. So when I look at the history of America, oftentimes I'm ashamed and horrified, but the, what the thing that gives me hope is that there are values, stated values and ideals that we can continue to strive for.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um, you know, we need to now get into another area that's sort of difficult, I think. Um, it it has to do with the idea of being an elitist and being part of the intelligentsia mm-hmm. you know you you mentioned that republicans they try to mix it up those two terms and, or maybe uh actually connect them but making being intelligent a negative as as the end result they're trying to achieve mm-hmm. is that is that accurate what I'm, I'm perceiving?
3: Yeah. It's, it struck me as, as, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes from the right is very troubling to me. And sometimes it's very clearly troubling. Like when they're being openly racist, for example, that's easy to pinpoint. You can say, well, look at them, they're racist. And I just explained why racism is so offensive to me. Um, But then other times they use terminology and I have to stop for a moment and say, what are they talking about? So here's, Uh, Let's go back. I'm going to say let's go back 35 to 40 years ago. The Republic, one of the Republican talking points, and I know they got together and they discussed what their talking points would be because they always do. But one of their talking points was let's identify those on the left as um, elite because there's something about that term elite that 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 a working person might um, be uh, adverse to. So in other words, if you're a working Joe, a blue-collar guy, you put on a hard hat every day and you go to a construction site and a politician is saying, you know, these elites are out to get you, you can sort of wrap your mind around that. I'm a working blue-collar guy. I get my hands dirty every day. But these people wearing three-piece suits, working in high-rises, these lawyers and these politicians, they're the elite and they're out to get me. But in fact, the people leveling those arguments against the left are all millionaires and billionaires, right? Rush Limbaugh, uh, Tucker Carlson, George, George W. Bush. um, I could go down this list. Uh, They're all millionaires and they sit there and they say the leftist elites are out to get you. And I look at them and I say, but according to my definition of elite, you people who are making this argument, you're elite. And yet somehow that argument, that argument carries weight with a lot of voters. And what I'm saying is what they really mean but what they won't say is the intelligentsia they're talking about people who have education people who have become expert in various areas and i'll go i'll go one step further i'll say this war on the educated has led us to horrible policy decisions such as denying climate change now 97 percent of the world scientists agree that there is climate change and yet A millionaire politician or a millionaire right-wing talk radio host can say, this is just the liberal elite lying to you. You need to listen to me. Oh, by the way, I'm also elite, but I'm not going to say that. I'm also a millionaire. I also belong to a country club. I also smoke Cuban cigars, but I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to act like I'm a worker just like you, and I'm going to attack the elite. And listen, global or I'm sorry, climate change isn't happening. That's just the elite trying to get one over on you. Well, now, all the evidence is there. If you if you have any lick of common sense and critical thinking ability, the world is getting warmer. And and but you, yet you, somehow they succeed in making people believe that it's just the elite that are lying to them. Well, and it, it's a,
1: it, it's an interesting. You're right, and it's an interesting uh, <laughs> conversion of the term elite because. As you're putting it, you know what is what does it mean? What does it mean, uh, elite? Uh, if you're talking about socioeconomic status, then the elite are the people that you're saying uh, have this this uh, this campaign to to uh, change the idea of what elite is. Uh, to be intellectualism, you know, because yeah. uh, you know, a lot of people that are intellectually uh, advanced because of their work in in that in that way, their their time and commitment to to educating themselves are not very rich. They're they're not they're they're not in the the uh, the golf country club set. No, they're not. So you know, you're right that, and it's a very successful trans transformation of the idea of what elite is. And people are being in the in the words of Malcolm X, what? Bamboozled.
3: Yeah. It's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a successful propaganda campaign. And 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 just think about this. Let's pretend I was I was standing on a stage at a podium debating um, debating Tucker Carlson.
1: And wait, hold on. Now you deb- have you have two minutes, so wrap it.
3: Okay, so let's pretend I'm debating Tucker Carlson or I'm debating George W. Bush, or I'm debating Donald Trump. Now That person, based on 30 or 40 years of propaganda, could look at me and say, oh, that's just another argument of the liberal elite. Now, that person who's a millionaire, who's a millionaire, they could get away with pointing a finger at me, a a public school teacher who grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the son of a TV repairman and a mother who's a secretary. They could point their finger at me and call me elite. And that would resonate with their audience. That's how much they've twisted language and meaning to their ends.
1: Well put. And God forbid that the masses became intellectuals. Because we all can. You don't have to be rich to be an intellectual. If that happened, then these sons of bitches would go down. We'd take over the government. we take over the reins of where this wonderful country is. Does indeed go. Thank you so much, Sir Fuliam. You let me be pontificating. Hey, is that it? We're done? I think we are.
3: Oh, no, I'm just getting started. I need like another hour and a half.
1: Well, we have you back all the time because you're wonderful. You're one of our best regular contributors. It's a pleasure having you on Troubadours and Rock. It's
3: It's a privilege and an honor, and I love it, and I can't wait to do it again. See you soon. Peace to you, my brother. Ciao. Ciao.
4: Turn the sound down on my TV I just can't listen anymore It's like I'm in some foreign country That I have never seen before So I come down here to think about it What in the hell are we gonna do? After all is said and all is done, it's just me and you. It's just me and you. And we are definitely outnumbered. There's more of them than us. Just when you think you made a new friend, they throw you under. it's just me and you. Yeah, it's just me and you. I had a friend I used to talk to. We used to both sit on the fence. But anymore, I can't relate to him. Cause he ain't got a lick of sense. So now I just ask you the question, but well, I'm the one I'm talking to. The world has gone out of its mind except for me and you. It's just me and you, and we are definitely outnumbered. when you think you've made a new friend, they throw you under the bus. So it's just me and you. Yeah, it's just me and you. Yeah, it's just me.
1: An excerpt from David Foster Wallace's masterpiece, Infinite Jest. This is from a part titled, Year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. Where was the woman who said she'd come? She said she would come. I already thought she'd have come by now, he sat and thought. He was in the living room. When he started waiting, one window was full of yellow light and cast a shadow of light across the floor, and he was still sitting waiting as that shadow began to fade and was intersected by a brightening shadow from a different wall's window. There was an insect on one of the steel shelves that held his audio equipment. This insect kept going in and out of one of the holes on the girders that the shelves fit into. The insect was dark and had a shiny case. He kept looking over at it. Once or twice he started to get up to go over closer to look at it. But he was afraid that if he came closer and saw it closer, he would kill it. And he was afraid to kill it. He did not use the phone to call the woman who'd promised to come, because if he tied up the line, and if it happened to be the time when maybe she was trying to call him, he was afraid she would hear the busy signal and think him disinterested and get angry, and maybe take what she'd promised him somewhere else. She had promised to get him a fifth of a kilogram of marijuana, 200 grams of unusually good marijuana for 1250 U.S. He had tried to stop smoking marijuana maybe 70 or 80 times before, before this woman knew him. She did not know he had tried to stop. He always lasted a week or two weeks or maybe two days, and then he'd think and decide to have some in his home one more last time. One last final time, he'd search out someone new, someone he hadn't already told that he had to stop smoking dope and please under no circumstances should they procure him any dope. It had to be a third party, because he told every dealer he knew to cut him off. And the third party had to be someone all new, because each time he got some, he knew this time had to be the last time, and so told them, asked them as a favor never to get him any more, ever and he never asked a person again once he told them this because he was proud and also kind and wouldn't put anyone in that kind of contradictory position. Also, he considered himself creepy when it came to dope and he was afraid that others would see that he was creepy about it as well. He sat and thought and waited in an uneven X of light through two different windows. Once or twice he looked at the phone the insect had disappeared back into the hole in the steel girder, a shelf fit into. She promised to come at one certain time, and it was past that time. Finally he gave in and called her number, using just audio, and it rang several times. And He was afraid of how much time he was taking tying up the line, and he got her audio answering device. The message had a snatch of ironic pop music, and her voice and a male voice together saying, we'll call you back. And the we made them sound like a couple. The man was a handsome black man who was in law school. She designed sets and he didn't leave a message because he didn't want her to know how much now he felt like he needed it. He had been very casual about the whole thing. She said she knew a guy just over the river in Alston who sold high resin dope in moderate bulk. And he'd yawned and said well maybe well hey why not sure special occasion i haven't bought any in i don't know how long she said he lived in a trailer and had a hair lip and kept snakes and had no phone and was basically just not what you'd call a pleasant or attractive person at all but the guy in Austin frequently sold dope to theater people in cambridge and had a devoted following he said he was trying to even remember when was the last time he'd bought any, it had been so long. He said he guessed he'd have her get a decent amount. He said he'd had some friends call him in the recent past and if, ask if he could get them some. He had this thing where he'd frequently say he was getting dope mostly for friends. Then if the woman didn't have it when she said she'd have it for him and he became anxious about it, he could tell the woman that it was his friends who were becoming anxious and he was sorry to bother the woman about something so casual, but his friends were anxious and bothering him about it, and he just wanted to know what he could maybe tell them. He was caught in the middle, is how he would represent it. He could say his friends had given him their money and were now anxious and exerting pressure, calling and bothering him. This tactic was not possible with this woman, who said she'd come with it because... He hadn't yet even given her the $1,250. She would not let him. She was well off. Her family was well off, she said, to explain how her condominium was as nice as it was when she worked designing sets for a Cambridge theater company that seemed to do only German plays, dark smeary sets. She didn't care much about the money, She said she'd cover the cost herself when she got out to the Alston Spur to see whether the guy was at home in the trailer, as she was certain he would be this particular afternoon, and he could just reimburse her when she brought it to him. This arrangement, very casual, made him anxious, so he'd been even more casual and said, sure, fine, whatever. Thinking back, he was sure he said, whatever, which in retrospect worried him because it might have sounded as if he didn't care at all, not at all, So little that it wouldn't matter if she forgot to get it or call. And once he'd made the decision to have marijuana in his home one more time, it mattered a lot. It mattered a lot. He'd been too casual with the woman. He should have made her take $1,250 from him up front, claiming politeness. Claiming he didn't want to inconvenience her financially over something so trivial and casual. Money created a sense of obligation and he should have wanted the woman to feel obliged to do what she'd say once what she would said she'd do had set him off inside. Once he'd been set off inside it mattered so much that he was somehow afraid to show how much it mattered. Once he had asked her to get it he was committed to several courses of action. The insect on the shelf was back. It didn't seem to do anything. It just came out of the hole in the girder onto the edge of the steel shelf and sat there. After a while, it would disappear back into the hole in the girder. And he was pretty sure it didn't do anything in there either. He felt similar to the insect inside the girder his shelf was connected to, but was not sure just how he was similar.
4: That's hanging up The goddamn nation Looks like we always in.
1: humility as the arrogant young mofo moves in his chair in the office next door. Even the creak of that chair has a lurid sense of aggrandized entitlement, and his beard yet to brandish a gray hair. Aum.
0: A vow in summertime. Now we find ourselves in late December. I believe that New Year's Eve will be the perfect time for their great surrender. But they don't remember. Anger wants a voice, voices won't sing. Sinners harmonize till they can't hear anything thought that I was free from all that questioning. But every time a problem is, another one begins. And the stone walls of harmony will bear witness. Anybody with a word in mind can never forgive the sight of wicked snakes inside a place you thought was dignified. Like a young pretender Beneath these velvet gloves I hide the shameful crooked ends of a money lender. Cause I still remember Anger wants a voice Voices want to sing Sinners harmonize Till they can't hear anything thought that I was free From all that questioning but every time a problem ends, another one begins. And the stone walls of vomiting all bear witness. Anybody with a word in mind can never forgive the sight of wicked snakes inside a place you thought was deep
1: And there you have it, episode 309 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our regular contributor and resident historian extraordinaire, the surf, Surf William. I also would like to thank the great writer, David Foster Wallace, and these musical artists. Childish Gambino, Bradley Cooper, Willie Nelson, Anushka Shankar, Terrence Blanchard, Vampire Weekend, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, and Brantford Marsalis. If you'd like to leave us a comment, please do so at either freespeak at wfte.org or ewconundrum at radiofreebrooklyn.org. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week, Let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one. Take care.